says something when you're at a Black Lives Matter protest, you have more minorities on the police side than you have in a, a violent crowd, and you have white people screaming at black officers, you have the biggest nose I've ever seen. What was it like in that capacity in the first few weeks when the fence was up around the Justice Center? I got to see folks that really do want change like the rest of us that have been impacted by racism. And then I got to see those people get faded out by people that have no idea what racism is all about. Never experienced racism. They don't even know that the tactics that they are using are the same tactics that were used against my people. And they don't even know, they don't even know the history. They don't know what they're saying. Coming from someone who graduated from PSU with a history degree, it's actually frightening. You know, they say if you don't know your history, you repeat it and watching people do that to other people. A lot of times, someone of color, black, Hispanic, Asian, come up to the fence and directly want to talk to me. Hey, what do you think about George Floyd? What do you think about what happened about this? I go up to the fence, someone white comes up, F the police, don't talk to him. That was the most bizarre thing because I could see it coming. I even had a young African-American girl uh, tell me, why is it you guys aren't talking to us? I said, honestly, this is now the 20, I think it was 23rd day of doing it. Every time I try to have a conversation with someone that looks like me, someone white comes up and blocks them and tells them not to talk. And then right when I said that, this white girl popped right in front of her. She said, he just said that was going to happen. I said, straight up. I said, you know, I've been called the N-word. She's been called the N-word. Why are you talking to me this way? Why do you feel that she can't speak for herself to me? Why is it that you feel you need to speak for her when we're having a conversation? But then when you go to a gentrified community, and the first, one of the first pictures I saw that of one of the business that was looted was a, a black-owned business, I'm like, they, they, they're not in front of me. Welcome to Canary to Coal Mine, Summer of Love Edition. I am your host, Ari Hoffman. So my phone's been ringing off the hook today, pretty much ever since last night when uh, Chief Best announced that she was retiring because the Seattle City Council cut a whole bunch of the Seattle Police Department budget. What does this mean? Should we move? Should we hire private security? What should we do now? What does this mean? What does it mean? Well, let's break it down for a minute. The cuts they made were to specific programs. It will affect probably about 100 officers. The cuts they made were to the navigation team. They got rid of the navigation team, so they claimed to be compassionate for the homeless and all that stuff, but they got rid of the team that actually goes out and brings social workers and offers services to these people, so junk that. They got rid of school resource officers, which means no more Seattle police patrolling public schools. Combine that with the fact that they cut back the SWAT team, which now means who's responding in a mass shooting event, God forbid there ever was one. God forbid, God forbid, God forbid. So they're putting your kids at risk. They cut the mounted unit, which deals with riots and events, so that could give more access to the people who are destroying the city. They cut the harbor unit, and just the other day there were two drownings in Lake Washington, so they're not needed at all. And just made a bunch of cuts to the, uh, cuts to the command staff, including targeting Chief Carmen Best, who is an African-American woman, who would have been making less money than her white predecessor. They didn't make any other cuts to any other city department heads, so that was targeted. They don't like the chief. This is what woke politics looks like. There's no rhyme and reason for it. It is 100% racist. It is 100% idealistic. And you look at the city council members, there's this video going around that the Seattle Police Department released 
which is these council members like Andrew Lewis, Dan Strauss, and Lisa Herbold pledging that they were going to fund the police department and hire more officers. This was at a SPOG forum, uh, Seattle Police Officers Guild forum, they had last year in October. Something interesting. All of them said they were going to, they wanted more police officers. There was only one honest person on stage that night from that side, and that was Sean Scott, the rabid Marxist socialist who was saying he wanted to defund the police. Kudos to him for showing up, at least, and being honest. That was the night an RV appeared in front of Lisa Herbold's home, and she called Chief Carmen Best to deal with it. That was that day. Literally, that day. I walked into that forum, and everybody looked at me like I was a criminal because they all thought I did it. It was literally that day. It had been on the Dory Monson show. It was front page of the Seattle Times. It was that day. And that's the day that Lisa Herbold is saying, oh, I want more police, I want more police. And now all three of them voted to defund the police, along with the rest of them. The only one who voted against it was Kashama Sawant. Why? Because she felt it didn't go far enough. I don't understand. Councilmember Peterson voted for it, and meanwhile these crazies have been attacking his house every night. Deborah Juarez was too chicken to show up. She abstained. So she didn't have to go on record, even though they've been at her house at night. This is a Marxist takeover. This is 100% a Marxist takeover. What can you do? Oh, wait, let's break it down real fast. So it affects over 100 officers, but here's something. Seattle Police was operating at 50%. It was 60%, now 50%. Anyway, so they have tons of open spots for officers, and they have nobody willing to fill them. How do you get somebody to take this job? How will this translate to affecting the police department for you? Well, you're going to see more homeless people on the streets. Your kids are going to be more exposed and all the other things I laid out. But it just means they're not going to be able to hire those officers that they so desperately need, and some will lose their jobs. Interestingly enough, most of the officers they've hired recently have been minority officers, so it's going to be first in, last out, most likely, even though council said, oh, they would play with that, to so only fire the white officers. Racists. That's what this means for you. So you can take measures into your own hands and provide your own personal security, which gets very expensive. You can get a gun, but then you need to know training on how to use it. Or I'm going to suggest something else. You can start a petition to defund the Seattle City Council. You can sign a petition to defund the Seattle City Council. Why do we need them? They each have four staff members. They each have offices. You want to say you need a council member, fine. Okay, we do by the Seattle City Charter. You don't need all the extras that come with it. You don't need all the expenses that come with it. You're talking their salaries are close to 200 k plus all their staff, plus everything else. Defund the Seattle City Council. A recall, I know a lot of you are talking about recalling the Seattle City Council. They have designed the system. They have manipulated the system. While none of us were looking, you all voted for it or you didn't vote so that they could get elected easier. That's what happened in the last election. They knew districts would elect them easier. They knew they could target certain areas if they drew the lines a certain way. They did everything that they designed it to do. The system worked exactly as they designed it. It will probably work again that way. So you could start a petition or you could sign a petition to defund the Seattle City Council and get that on the ballot for this November. If you wait any longer than that, you don't have a chance because it's been shown that Seattleites have a short memory. Look what happened with the head tax. Overwhelmingly, people didn't want the head tax, and then they voted for all the people who were going to bring back the head tax to be in Seattle City Council. That's what you voted for, whether or not you voted for it, but somebody voted for it. And all you talking about voter fraud and things like that, yes, there's ballot harvesting. We could be doing the same thing. Could be. If it's open, go ahead and do it. I don't like it. I think it's unethical, but you can go ahead. If they're playing by those rules, you play by those rules. You want to talk about the homeless people voting? I looked into it. I couldn't find any evidence in my district. That doesn't mean it's not happening in other districts, but you can go check it out for yourself. I did the PDR request. There was no great shakes. So it wasn't anything big. Uh, ballot harvesting was a huge, huge contributing factor. But what do we do now? Where do we go now? You have to tell them. You have to email them. You have to call them. I know they're never going to get back to you. 
Because it goes on record, at least, that you spoke out against it. You have to tell your friends. You have to talk to your friends. You have to talk to your friends going to these rallies and supporting these rioters and saying, you really want this in your backyard? Because it'll be there soon enough. It will be. Are we going to be Venezuela where everybody has to hire their own personal security and have massive walls in front of their houses to keep criminals out? Tons of security friends I know are getting tons of calls. I have people calling me asking for referrals for security companies to secure their neighborhoods. This is only going to get worse. This will not get better. The Seattle electorate is stupid. Sorry. You guys keep voting for the same thing again and again. You just re put Inslee back into office for all that matters. I mean, I wish somebody had a shot against him, but realistically, it's a huge uphill battle. This is on you. So what can you do to fix it? You can get involved. You can tell your friends. Because the majority of people still are not voting. Get them involved. You want something concrete to do? Do that or move. Because I'm tired of everybody complaining and complaining and complaining. Take your tax money elsewhere. Take your tax money elsewhere. I'm the guy who used to recruit for Seattle and tell people to stay and try to encourage people to come. But now I have no case. I have no case. Seattle is a national joke. If I was chief best, I would have quit too. Hey, you know what? Maybe I should apply for the job because Seattle City Council wants to replace them with a civilian agency. I'm a civilian. I can run a police department. Sure. I don't know the first thing about it, but I got to be better than whatever socialist Marxist they're going to put in there for this civilian thing. Let me ask a question. Do these civilian guys have to play by the same rules as security guards? Are they going to start attacking security guards next? Because they already have. I know some of them have been followed home. They're shining the lasers in their eyes. They're attacking them, private security guards. And they can't defend themselves, and they don't have the city resources to defend themselves if it goes to, you know, court. Because somebody attacked them, and they had to shoot. They don't have the same resources. What does it mean for them? What does it mean for the civilian agency? You can have social workers respond to a school shooting. That's where we go. You either start getting involved, you either start voting, or you leave. Or you start telling your friends what's going on and getting the word out there. Posting on social media doesn't do it. You have to actually act. And I think we may be past that time. Really, really do. Is the city going to wake up? This will be a news story for a few days, and then it'll go away. And it's going across the country. I look at New York. When I was a kid, there were these hotels that had been turned into homeless shelters, and the place was just a, a cesspool. Giuliani came in, cleaned up the place. They turned back into gorgeous hotels, and now de Blasio has given them the homeless population, and now you see people fleeing the Upper West Side. It's just cyclical. Keeps going like this. And people are fleeing Manhattan, moving to the suburbs. They've had enough. Do you want to be part of the solution, or do you want to be part of the problem? Do you want to share this kind of stuff? Do you want to leave town? Do you want to get involved and say, this is my time to start a petition? Hey, parents were the ones who started that petition to get the sex ed bill out of the curriculum. And they got over 260,000 signatures during a pandemic. Don't think you can't do something like that, because you can. Call a lawyer, buddy. Everybody knows at least one. And get a referral. Somebody's going to want to help you with this, something like this. What do we do now? Where do we go from here? And it comes down to you getting involved and no longer being the silent majority, but being the vocal majority. The way you all showed up to that protest, the rally, not a protest. This was actually a peaceful protest. The rally in front of City Hall. There were thousands of people there. There were maybe 60 counter-protesters. But that's they were in the media as if they were even. Get involved. It's the only way to change anything. It really is. It's the only way to change anything. I've been saying it forever. Either get involved or leave town. Because I'm starting to sound like a broken record. I really am. This is coming for your city. It's already in a lot of your cities. I find it entertaining. Somebody who I work with said, you know, we used to like your articles because there's all these cutesy little things about Seattle. And then we started seeing how relevant they were because of what was happening across the country. And wow, we didn't realize how relevant they'd become. Don't say it. I didn't warn you. 
Coming up, we got a lot more in Canary in a Coal Mine Summer of Love edition, including an interview with Cliff Mass, who some of you may know. If you don't know him, you're really going to enjoy it. He's the one who wrote that article talking about how bad things have gotten in downtown Seattle, plus a whole lot more when we come back on Canary in a Coal Mine. Welcome back to Canary in a Coal Mine. I am joined by Cliff Mass, who is formerly the meteorologist over at KNKX Radio. And Cliff wrote an amazing, amazing article, which I shared on my website. I shared on my um, social media pages. After he took a trip to downtown Seattle, Cliff, thank you so much for being with us. What inspired you to go down there and write this? You're from Tacoma. You're not even from Seattle, right? No, I'm from Seattle. I so live in Seattle. Seattle. Okay. Yeah, I, I am. I am here. But, you know, I heard so much about what was, what's been going on downtown, and I've been reading so much about the defunding police and all those other issues so i thought i'd go down myself to see what it was like and so i took a two-hour walk around downtown and i was i was pretty stunned by what i saw it, it was extraordinary you know block after block of, of boarded up businesses some it almost looked like a fortress you know three-dimensional protection guards all over the place and uh you know very few people it was a, a number of homeless people sleeping on on the sidewalks and I mean it was really dystopian and then I went past the famous McDonald's where you know everybody knows that's where you pick up drugs right you think that everybody the police would know about it and it was going on right in front of me so I was just really taken aback by how badly things are in downtown Seattle how it's changed so much so that's what got it started for me uh, you know, I have to say, the thing that struck me most was you made a comparison in your article that you got a lot of flack for, which I, for the record, have said the exact same thing. On multiple platforms, you compared the rioting and the broken windows to Kristallnacht, which, for those of you who don't know, in 1938, the Germans and other parts of Europe started destroying Jewish businesses, actively targeting Jewish businesses, and smashing out the windows. It's called the Night of Broken Glass. And you actually got called an anti-Semite for using that terminology, and you're Jewish. That's right. Right. <laughs> That's right. And, and it's more than just the broken glass. I mean, the broken glass, you know, is obviously a commonality. But basically, you had these thugs that were running around, breaking windows, intimidating people, hurting people, certainly hurting, hurting police. And you didn't have the government really intervening. I mean, a lot of the political people were were actually trying to avoid even discussing it i mean they were talking about this as you know a, a peaceful protest um they were trying to handcuff the police so and, and i mean some of the city council people almost seemed supportive of it so it was very scary so you had this sort of semi-official support by some people in government you had the broken windows you had the thugs and uh, you know big element of what happened in Nazi Germany was that uh, good people or, or people that should that should have known better said nothing. They were afraid, and that ha was true here. A lot of people were afraid. I mean, I've gotten hundreds of emails during the last week of people saying they're just so discomforted by what's going on, but they were afraid to say anything. So that's another thing that's similar to Germany: the fear of of, of some of the good people, the good people in the population. Yeah, everybody likes to say they would have been the ones that fought back against it, but they're not fighting back against it now. Very right. limited numbers, not publicly. That's right. This is their opportunity. Right. right. This is the time to prove they're ready to stand up 
against this kind of activity, but a lot of them aren't doing it, right? One of the most striking things for anybody who goes to Europe and sees the camps or sees any of that kind of stuff is they were smacked out in the middle of town. There's no way these people didn't know what was going on. A lot of people, they worked at these places and they knew what was going on and they turned a blind eye to it. Now I'm not comparing what's going on right now to the camps or anything like that, but at the same time, if we're drawing comparisons right now, it is in the news all the time. You can see the stuff if you're looking for it. If you choose to ignore it, that's on you. And I don't know why people are continuously defending this kind of behavior. I know it's 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 really scary, and and so my blog, you know, actually got out there and criticized it. I mean, I was basically saying the violence was unethical, was immoral, wrong, etc. And people went after me. See, they, they, they didn't want to go directly at, at my statement about the violence, so they tried to use, you know, the Jewish side, you know, the Kristallnacht side, as a way of attacking me, that I'm some kind of anti-Semite. That is what the tool they used to try to put down my blog. You know, it's, it was so transparent what they, what they were doing, right? right? You know, I'll tell you, here's something funny. Some people messaged me who had sent me the article, and they know I'm Jewish, and they said, we are so sorry for sending you this article. I go, what are you talking about? I said, it's a great article, and I shared it. And yeah. they go, then why are people calling it anti-Semitic? I go, because they have nothing else to say. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and again, it's, it, it's a, a Jewish person can't say anything about it. I mean, it's, it's, it's amazing. A Jewish person sees the connection and can't speak about it. And so non-Jewish people can criticize that Jewish person for doing so. It's just, it's bizarre. Really. It's absurd. So what happened after that? You write this blog post, the station called you and said, you got to take it down or what? No, they didn't even do that. They didn't give me the courtesy of saying, well, there's some discomfort. You know, maybe you should take, take it down or do something. They, they called me up and said, you're wrong. And it, with, without any discussion, they had judged me and the jury was in. I was gone. In fact, my inside sources of the station revealed that basically they got hit by a lot of social media and they panicked. They panicked and they just, they, they, they decided to do this. It, it, it was terrible. And in doing so, they made you a bigger name and more people read the article. So I don't know what they thought they were accomplishing. But... Right, right. So what they did, not only did they get everybody to read the article, not only did they get everybody to talk, talk about it, but hundreds of donors to KNKX are pulling their money back. And even more important than that, you know, I was heavily involved in saving the station. And that station was saved for one reason, to preserve diversity of viewpoint in Seattle. We were going, it's going to go from two public radio stations to one. And people valued having a different voice. So it's ironic, a station saved to, to protect diversity of opinion, trot destroys diversity of opinion. It's, no good deed goes unpunished. It's, it's awful. It's so today, I was at the SPD rally, and I was thrilled when I heard them announce you as one of the first speakers today. Um, I was actually so engaged with your speech that I wasn't recording it. I wanted to listen to it. So would you mind sharing with the audience a few of the things you said today? Because I thought it was wonderful. Right. Well, I'm, I'd be happy to send you a copy of it. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, but basically, you know, I, I, I describe my viewpoint, and then like a lot of people's viewpoint, about what's going on. That defunding the police by 50% or some big number is absolutely absurd. Um, that a lot of the city council uh, a year ago were suggesting that we need more police, that there were security issues. And now when the political winds shift, all of a sudden now they want to cut the police. 
um, they had no plan. So instead, you know, they just want to reduce, they want to reduce the police, but they really haven't thought through what they're going to do, how they could preserve safety in the city. They haven't thought that through at all. And so, you know, I, I, I was kind of critical of the city council, to put it mildly, that not only are they messing this up, but one problem after the other in the, in the city is festering and they're just not taking it seriously. So, and then finally I end with basically a statement of support saying that there's a vast number of people in the city that are quiet, that are maybe afraid to speak, but who actually, who support the Seattle Police Department. As it's called the silent majority. And today I got, uh, I got unofficial counts from Seattle Police Department that ranged anywhere from 3,000 to 5,000. My personal view, I saw more like 3,000, not 5,000, but still yeah. there were a ton of people down there today supporting SPD. And I think it was wonderful to see. Right. And in fact, originally they were only expecting a few hundred. Yeah. Yeah. And, and they were, you know, I try to do a little count myself walking around. Uh, I, I figured around 3,000, something mm -hmm. like that. But, you know, who, who knows? That's what it seemed like to me. But of course, all the news outlets are focusing on the 60 protesters that were across the street, not the thousands of people that were out for the rally today. Right. And the other thing that impressed me was how, uh, how problematic those those protesters were. I mean, they they they, they really w didn't even live up to the name that I was hoping to see. You know, they, they were not impressive folks, to, to put it mildly, you know? Yeah, not really. It was pretty lame today on their end of things. I was expecting a few more fireworks. And uh, actually, I should be thankful because, yeah. you know, that way nobody gets hurt or anything. I mean, there were yeah. a few little incidents here and there, but it wasn't anything major this time. So what's next for you? I mean, this just happened a few days ago. Have you charted out what you want to do next? Do you have any ideas what you want to do next? Well, the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to be writing a blog about what happened at KNKX. And there's a lot that's not known about what went on under the hood over at that radio station and, and the, the power of a number of extremely uh, left-wing donors and, I'm going to talk about that. I will talk about how I almost got kicked off two months ago because of what I was saying about climate change. So, uh, I mean, I have a lot to say, but I'm going to be talking about cancel culture and KNKX. And so that's going to be a, a, a blog I'll be doing this week. That's excellent. It's a little scary to me that now we're not allowed to even have one opinion. You know, I, I got one of my closest friends. He's a Yankee fan. I'm a Mets fan. He's a liberal. I'm a, more of a conservative. And we go to baseball games together and we're still best friends. Right. So it's really upsetting to me that that is just like going out of style these days. Right, right. Well, anyway, Cliff Mass, thank you so much for being with us. It was such a joy to hear you speak today. It was really a pleasure to meet you in person. And right. really, best of luck in what you're doing. And please send me the, the next blog post you write, because I will make sure it gets out there more and more. I think we need more people reading the story. Well, thank you very much. Pleasure to talk to you. Okay, we'll be back after a brief word from our I want to preface this next interview by telling you, this is an interview I did during the primaries. I was out of town, things got nuts. I didn't get a chance to air it, and I'm sorry I didn't. I just didn't. I really wanted to air it. This is a gentleman who I disagree with politically. I, we found a lot of areas we do agree on, and we found common ground on if we didn't agree on them. But I want you to see the mentality of what, I don't want to say we're up against, but what is trying to take over Seattle, who is trying to take over Seattle. Because this really encapsulates it. It's a different way of thinking than you and I are used to. This may give you an insight into it. I'm not trying to attack anybody. I really had every hope of getting this out. And I respect this gentleman because I've asked tons of Democrats, Democrats in Seattle, they're not really Democrats, they're socialists, they're Marxists, to be on my show, and every single one of them has refused or not gotten back to me. 
Council members refuse not going back to me. Mayor refuse not going back to me. Governor refuse not going back to me. Refuse to take questions at press conferences. This is the only one who reached out. I don't want to denigrate him in any way. I appreciate the fact that he reached out and he said I want to have a conversation. He obviously didn't make it through the primary, but this is somebody who I had a conversation with. And there's an interesting insight, an interesting look into the psyche of what's going on here in Seattle. Welcome back to Canary in a Coal Mine. I am joined by Jack Hughes Hagman, who is running in this year's primary election. Jack, thank you for being with us. Can you tell us a little bit about what you're running for and what area it encompasses? So I'm running for Washington's 7th Federal Congressional District. So that encompasses the heart of Seattle, um, all the way up to Shoreline, um, and a little bit, a little snippet of Snohomish County. Um, and then it goes all the way down to uh, Burien and Normandy Park, and then hops over to Vashon and Maury Islands. Um, it also encompasses a little bit of unincorporated King County, like White, uh, White Center. And, uh, but that's the majority of the district. It also includes uh, the U District, but I just kind of consider that part of North Seattle, so. Don't we all? Yes. <laughs> so you're running against Pramila Jayapal, right? Is that correct? Uh, yeah, I'm running against uh, Pramila Jayapal and uh, three other candidates. Gotcha. So I want to say, first of all, your facial hair is glorious. So that scored you brownie points. But second of Thank all, you. you identify as a progressive on your website and such. And I have to say that it was amazing to me that you reached out because given the amount of progressives that have said no to coming on my show, or not interested in talking to me, or who have ripped me online, I have to say, I am very much appreciative of somebody who wants to engage and have the conversation. So for all my audience out there, just want to let everybody know, that's the kind of person Jack is. He engaged with me, and will most likely be the kind of guy who wants to engage with you. So let's dive right into the issues here. You and I agree on a lot more than I thought we would in perusing your website. So I'm just going to start with homelessness, which was one of the first things I saw there. You had some interesting ideas involving work, work corps, universal coverage, and I was just wondering how you intend to pay for those programs. So currently the federal budget is really overbloated. Um, back in my senior year of high school, they had this nifty tool. Back in my senior year of high school, we had a lot of budget crises. It was, uh, we were just coming off of 2008, it was 2011, and a lot of places were having longstanding budget crises left over from the Great Recession. Um, they had a cool little nifty tool at, uh, I think it was, uh, the wall street journal, uh, page that you can, you can shift around the budget, clip here, move stuff over there. The amount of federal pork that goes to absolute useless programs like, uh, uh, oil subsidies. We have massively profitable oil companies across the United States that get millions upon billions of dollars each year to make millions and billions of dollars already that money could be used in a lot of better places. Um, we could provide universal uh, mental health care coverage to every single American, homelessness or not, for 300 to $400 billion a year. That, that seems like kind of a large package, but it's not when you think about it in the long run, because if we're about to spend $2 trillion on our first stimulus package and we're thinking about spending even more, um, as, as a reasonable stimulus to just COVID, the fact that we're not doing that in response to the homelessness crisis, which is widespread, it's affecting millions of Americans from coast to coast, um, is, is almost appalling. I mean, this is a nation where we're supposed to have life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, and we can't even, we can't even keep people who are having a hard time off the streets. 
And I feel like that's where we should be putting our money towards, not towards, not towards corporate subsidy. It has been my experience, and I appreciate your candor with that. It has been my experience that in Seattle specifically, um, and the state and local levels, we are funding non-performing homeless agencies rather than things that might make a difference and that people are turning down those services. Are you concerned that even if you get the funding for these programs, these people still may not accept services? Not at all. I feel like the real problem with the homelessness crisis is that it's not being addressed on a federal level. People are expecting state and city governments that are already overcome with infrastructure problems and other issues to deal with what is not just a growing, it's a, it's a super intersectional issue. It's, it, you, have the, you have the opiate crisis playing into it. You have the housing crisis playing into it. You have so many different factors playing into it that honestly, city and state governments have no chance. They're already struggling to pay for bridges. They're already struggling to pay for schools. They're already struggling to pay for the, the, the other things that they're, that they're basically supposed to take care of. And I think that that's, that's tough. That's a really tough break. Um, so what needs to happen is a federal response. Right now, there's almost no federal response to homelessness whatsoever. They, they throw money at cities and states to do anything. And usually what city and states do is it's called the broom tactic. They say, we're going to take all these homeless people and we're going to sweep them over there. And then they say, homelessness is done. And it's, it's, it's awful. It, it, it hurts the homeless people and it doesn't solve the problem whatsoever. Um, so what we need is a federal response, a, a massive stimulus. We have National Guard all across the United States that could be helping these people, that could be going in and, set, and setting up real areas, sanitary areas for these people to live. The fact that um, we don't have, that, the fact that there's not, that they don't have sanitary areas, the fact that there's um, a complete lack of, uh, I would say, basic humane treatment is is appalling to me i mean these are american people who are suffering on our streets and i feel the government could have stepped in years ago to do so much more for these people and i feel like it would be something that some people would say oh look at the cost i say look at the benefit once you once you help all these people and and see the societal impact it, it that it, that it makes when you help these people get off the streets that pays dividends that lasts eons you know what i mean like it it really really helps and it if you don't tackle it at the federal level, it's no one's ever going to have the resources to take care of it. Well, you have on here secondary education. Do you think that sending these people to college or graduate school is the key when really you could have them be doing jobs for like construction workers and things like that, maybe in an apprenticeship program, and that may help solve things faster than a four-year degree? That's, that's what secondary education is. Nowadays, people, when they hear secondary education, they think four-year bachelor's degree. Honestly, in today's workforce, a four-year bachelor's degree does not make sense for a lot of people. Um, and is honestly, it only helps to get into kind of a blue-collar corporate jobs. And, and if you don't want to do that, and, and if honestly, those are not the most profitable jobs these days. And if you don't want to do that, you're, you're going to need training and skills that's not always uh, natural. A lot of people who get into, into, um, into trade industries uh, do it because of family connections. Um, it's my dad, my uncle, my brother, my sister, my cousin um, is involved in a union or a trade, and that's how a lot of people get involved, um, or, or a friend or a mentor, you know? Um, but honestly, what, what I think needs to happen is people, what a lot of people get done with high school, they have no idea what they want to do. They should be able to look at a big old list that says, hey, you want to go learn to be a welder? You want to go, you can, there, there's a million different things they can learn to be. They can learn to be a journalist. Um, one problem with policing today is a lot of uh, police don't have a, don't have a real good understanding of the law themselves. 
that we could be sending people right after high school to two year uh, to two year uh, law introduction degrees that have so that by the time they're entering the police force, they have really good understandings of the law and they are there to represent the law instead of just how they feel about the law. I'm, there's so many different ways we could be educating Americans. Um, I mean, and these are not even just two year degrees. We have six month programs. Uh, year programs, uh, work trade programs, uh, not just apprenticeships, but uh, in the civilian work corps program that I was talking about, you have, um, you sign up for three months, they pay you for three months, you go, and it's, um, you know, you can, there's so many different ways we can be educating and paying um, our citizens to be really improving our nation. And I feel like that's where we should be spending our money. It's a win-win. Not only are we paying our own citizens, but we're improving the nation building trails, building roads. It's like, there's it's really, it's a, it, when you have a win-win-win situation like that, it's really surprising that they haven't gone for it already. Well, since you brought um, it up, I wasn't going to do this because I didn't see it on your website. It doesn't sound like you're in favor of the defund the police movement. It sounds like you're in favor of more training and more opportunities to have a better police force. Um, not entirely. Honestly, I feel a lot of police forces have a really bloated, um, really bloated, uh, uh, not just a budget, they have a really bloated discretionary spending budget. So what that means is that um, it, it usually accounts for a lot of it just accounts for overtime. But in that overtime, we have policemen in the Puget Sound area that are making a quarter million dollars, $300,000 a year. And these are, I mean, don't get me wrong. This is, I, I feel like, you know, people who are B cops really do deserve a, a higher quality of life. But on the same note, that's a that's insane. I mean, like people out here are struggling. Three hundred and thirty thousand dollars a year for that's that's a lot of money. And I feel that uh, not just in terms of uh, pay, but in terms of what the police force spends their money on. They're buying tanks. They're buying tear gas. They're buying pepper spray. When when you're in the streets and you're seeing people getting gassed, that is that just it just it it, it upsets me. It just it just pisses me off that we're, that's what we're spending money on we have homeless people in the streets we have people not able to afford housing we have children who have to go to school and and beg the lunch person to just give them a lunch today and and yet we're spending money on tear gas i do believe that there's certain things that the police shouldn't be spending money on and we've been spending a lot of money on the militarization of police i think absolutely needs to stop and there's a lot of money behind that um, the, the military really needs to offload a lot of their old gear. They have, what are they going to do with all these old MRAPs? So they thought, hey, what a great idea. Let's give them to all these police horses. But what's happened is these police horses have become aggressive and intimidating to communities that they serve. And the fact that we're spending money to intimidate our own people, I think is, I think is shocking and wrong. Well, the Seattle Police Department doesn't actually have any of that equipment. And what would you suggest they protect themselves with when they're being attacked in the streets of Seattle by explosives and IEDs? I don't think there's any explosives or IEDs in Seattle. Um, and if they, if there ever was, we're going to be in a uh, in a kind of like a Bane takes over Gotham situation. That is a uh, that's a situation that I, I don't think is ever going to happen in Seattle. And if it is happening in Seattle. Um, America is going to be at a, a very low spot in history. So I really hope that if we're ever getting there, we have a lot of other problems in the nation that we're probably going to be having to deal with. Um, but I honestly think that they don't need anti-tank anti round or anti-mine anti vehicles in the city of Seattle. Um, but when it comes down to defending themselves against, uh, against say, riots, they have plenty of riot gears. Honestly, there's plenty of ways you can deal with 
large groups of people without without trying to intimidate them, without trying to hurt them. And a lot of times when you do those things, when you go and you gas people in the streets, it offends people. It brings more people out. It encourages more extreme reactions from the people that you're trying to you have to ask yourself, are, 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 are you trying to fix the problem or are you trying to do what you think is right? Um, Benjamin Franklin once said, you catch much more bees with honey or you catch many more flies with honey than you do vinegar. And when you douse, a, when you douse crowds with, with, with chemical weapons, that, that's a lot of vinegar. It really, really brings people out at that point. Sometimes it really, really offends people. So what would you attribute the uh, chop to? That was a takeover of the city. I don't think CHOP was a takeover of the city at all. What happened was the, the first uh, protest started when uh, they blocked off access to the East Precinct. Uh, people were going to march to the East Precinct and they were blocked off by police. And then that started a multiple day protest. People would stand in front of the line of police demanding essentially access to march down the street and the police would continually bar them from doing so. Um, and at many times they cleared, the, they cleared people out with tear gas, pepper spray, um, and then it got so far and so bad that the chief of police said, we're not going to use any more tear gas, I promise. Or we put a ban out on tear gas. That night, they gassed out the entire park and rode so many people through there, it looked like a Star Wars scene. Um, you had bike cops going at people, pushing people down. I mean, don't get me wrong, I understand people are like, we need law and order. But when, when you're going to go in and harm citizens who are honestly exercising, I feel, exercising the right to peaceful assembly, um, then, then I think that's completely wrong. Now, I, I'm not in support of any sort of property destruction, but I, I was down there for multiple days protesting. I was there the day that uh, a man drove a car into the crowd and shot someone in the arm. Um, he, he drove in the, si the side of the crowd that he drove into. I was there not 15 minutes beforehand, my fiance. Um, and so that, that's the kind of thing is that these, these incidents only escalated after, after essentially police drew a line and when you draw a line in the sand and ask people to cross it you're you're asking for trouble honestly if they would have let those people march by on the first day i don't think chop would have ever existed do you think that the um shootings inside the chop the violence the rapes the assaults are attributable to the police department almost absolutely they vacated the space what they could have done is provided security for the entire thing if they could have engaged with the public if they could have gone out there taken off the riot gear said hey guys this is who we are. We're not trying to offend you. We want to be here. We want to make change. Let's make the East Precinct a center of change instead of a center of oppression. That would have been amazing. Imagine if Chief Best and, and, and Jenny Durkin came out on the very first day and said, you guys can march up this street and we're going to march with you, with the police. And the, uh, the police are going to block off the streets to make sure no one's going to be able to drive down here and hit you with the car. The police are going to protect you while you exercise your right to peaceful assembly. That there, that would have been, I think, the true decision that they that, that should have been made. That would have made so much of an impact to show the community that, hey, we're with you. We want to stand with you with this change. We want to be a part of that change as we go forward. And that, that would have made a huge difference, I think, to, to quell unrest in the city. But instead, they, they built a powder keg and then lit the fuse. It was and, and then after things started after things started to become really populated in the area, they literally people were filling up the uh, park with uh, tents. There's the police literally abandoned the area. Now that was a combination of different factors, but I feel like the police really did, uh, really did go out of their way to disservice the chop, and that they could have done a lot more to provide security for the people there. And if if anything, all they had to do was keep the chop lights on later at night, and things would have been fine. 
but I mean, I don't think so. No, that's, 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 that's a really not, I, that's a really bold thing to say. And I, I take that back. I don't want to say that leaving the lights on later would have made anything fine. Um, but there's a lot of different things that the police could have done to make chops safer for the citizens there and to engage with them. And I feel like they purposefully didn't do that and tried to push back against the people of the chop. Um, and don't you think on the first couple of days when the looting and rioting was happening, that's probably why the police had the response they did? Not at all. Looting and rioting has happened routinely throughout American history since the since the dawn of American history. And there's two things that you can do. You can you can protect property as best you can and then arrest people later, which means you put up boards, you, you, you do as much preventative as you can, and then afterwards arrest and people and, and find them. And then also the city provides direct immediately immediate relief to all the businesses affected. Honestly, as long as these places have business insurance and the city is able to financially back them up, what is a million, two million dollars compared to a 10 day protest in the, in, in the chop? What I'm saying is that you, you, there's there's two options you can take. You can say, hey, what is the damage that's going to be caused and how are we going to fix it? Or you can say, you know what? How about we just beat these people down? That's going to stop it. I don't think it's going to stop it at all. If, if people start breaking things and and then you go and instigate them more, you're going to have more breakage. You're going to have more extreme reactions. And I mean, anybody who's had kids knows that like being like, I know what's going to happen. I'll just, I'll just yell at them a whole bunch and that's going to just fix that. will just nip it right in the butt. It, you might stop it for a day, but not at all. You need to address things at, at the emotional level. What is happening here? Why are these people out in the streets in the first place? And honestly, like I said, if these people were marching with these protesters, I don't think there would be any rioting. No one goes up and smashes a window when there's a whole bunch of cops walking along with you. Like, hey, if there was policemen out there handing out food, if there's policemen out there, you know, like providing real security, not, not like standing there in riot gear pointing M4s at people. I think that that would have prevented writing much more than any sort of tear gas or beatings ever could. Yeah, but getting back to your analogy, I don't let my kids light my house on fire or smash my windows and then just say the insurance company is going to pay for it later. I say, no, don't do that. Yeah, but that's what I'm saying is that they weren't marching with the people saying, no, don't do that. They they stood from afar. And honestly, I feel like their their intimidation tactics really did inspire that uh, that backlash. Seattle has a really long history of police violence at protests, going all the way back to like the the World Trade protests back at the Battle of Seattle. Um, that that was when I was like six years old, not even. Um, and so here I am, twenty years later, and it's the same kind of stuff happening. Um, people wanted to say back then, no, it was those it was those really crazy kids down in Seattle. Honestly, it, it wasn't. It was it was a lot of anger and violence from police, which is which is historical. Honestly, how are, that's what they're trained to do. What are what are the what are they trained to do when people aren't doing what they want to? Arrest them. What else? What else are they trained to do? Honestly, that's that's what they've been trained since day one. Like day one at the at the force. They're like somebody's not doing doing what you're fucking telling them. Bam, slap their ass in cuffs. And and whereas that might help in some certain violent situations with certain small interactions with like one or two violent criminals. I feel if you're trying to engage with community and help quell violence in a protest, that's not how you do it. And as we've seen, these protests are getting bigger and, and more intense all over the nation. And that's because I believe this police reaction, the, these, these protests are in response to the police actions, not, not it, I feel like it's, if there's a chicken and the egg, the, the police response is the egg 
that is birthing the, the anger of the chicken. Getting into a few more national issues. So I noticed that on here you have education. And one thing that I had an issue with was public funding for private education. So for me, I send my kids to private school because a lot of the public schools are really no good. And I want to have religious studies and I want to have that kind of stuff for my kids. That's the kind of stuff I want to do. And meanwhile, my property taxes are paying for public school. So why do you think we should pull the money from private education and put it into a never ending cycle of a failing public school education system? I believe that the public education system is absolutely not a failing system. I'm a product of the public education system. I feel like I'm doing pretty great. This is the second time I'm running for Congress. I mean, my life has absolutely not been perfect. I've had a lot of really bad downs, but I feel like here I am on a pretty good up, and I'm, I'm a product of the public school system. I feel like I have an amazing religious knowledge, and I didn't need, the, I didn't need uh, a religious education to do that. And uh, I also feel like a lot of these are, are not at all a nonprofit school. These are, most of these are very profitable businesses. These are, <laughs> there's not a lot of private schools that are shoddy. Um, the majority of private schools, especially here in the Puget Sound region, are, are um, to put it in a quaint way, uh, impressive, I'd say. They are, they are extremely well-funded already, and I absolutely don't feel like they need federal funding. On top of that, the public school system is something that's going to have to exist. I really don't feel that privatizing education would, would make any sort of improvement and would really disenfranchise people with lower incomes. Um, and the majority of America has lower incomes. So what I think needs to happen is all the right now, America is funding a public education system and also putting a lot of funding into a private education at the same time. And what's happening is we're funding a direct competitor to our own service. And whereas, don't get me wrong, I think that, you know, education is a is a great ideal. These places are already making money. If they're a business, it's a business. That's the way it is. If you want to be a business, you have to operate as a business and going to the government and being like, can I have my government cheddar because I'm a, but I'm a, but I'm a school. You're a business. If you can't make money as a business, don't go to the government and ask for cash. I think that if you want to be a private education system, that's totally fine. Especially if you want, if you believe it provides a higher education level, but pay for it yourself. It's a, it's a business. It's a service you want to get. And um, the reason you pay for public school is because that's the, what the majority of Americans are probably going to be in as much as it's nice to think that, at one day we could all go to private school that's not going to be the case for the vast majority of americans so and would you think that um we should have given the bailout money to the colleges that were suffering during the coronavirus shutdown do you think that the ivy league should have received that kind of government funds in order to continue existing no god no the the, the i think one of the biggest problems in america today is a system of private colleges versus public colleges public colleges will get you ahead in life you're able to get a great education for a great price but what really happens in college, if you want to really go far, it's not about what you learn, it's about who you meet. And honestly, when you're going to public universities, you're going to be meeting other people who are going to go farther in life. But <clears throat> like you said, um, <clears throat> these private institutions have really, really expensive clientele, really well-connected clientele. Um, specifically, uh, like places like Georgetown University in Washington, D.C., you have some really, really well-connected people from both sides of the aisle. When you start looking at how long that list is, you have almost every single one of the Trump children, almost like half the Democratic congressmen, uh, several senators, all went to Georgetown. From And so the fact that one university is represented so heavily in, in Congress tells you just right there how, how you know, where does 
private education and and nepotism you know lead off you know what i mean so that's why i think public institutions should not be supporting private businesses well jack i have so many more questions for you and i wish i had more time to go through it with you but i really do appreciate you coming on the show and having a meaningful conversation we may not agree on everything but going through your website there's a lot of stuff we do and I'd say you and I probably, even though we're from different sides of the political aisle, there's about 60, 70% of stuff we do agree on. Really do. It may not have been the things I pushed back on today, but I think that's a great way to start building bridges. I hope you've gotten as much out of this conversation as I have. And if people want to find out more about your campaign, if they want to support your campaign, if they want to volunteer for it, what's the best way for them to do that? Um, just contact me at uh, info at HughesHegman.com or visit my website, www.HughesHegman.com. Jack, um, yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah. Oh, and I just wanted to say uh, thank you so much. I, I really like that you mentioned building bridges because one of the main tenants of my campaign is rebuilding the West Seattle Bridge. The last time the West Seattle Bridge was down, it took seven to eight years before before there was any money to repair that bridge. And it wasn't until the federal government stepped in that anything happened. I think that's going to happen again. And the people of West Seattle are going to be in a real, real bind if we don't do that ASAP. And I am 100% with you on that. <laughs> so. that, that yeah. I think some people say bridge, some people say tunnel. A lot of people are saying, why not do both? Why not we repair the overbridge as best we can, if it can be repaired, and then also build a tunnel underneath the Duwamish? Um, it's going to be a question that, that needs to get answered, but we need to get that answered now instead of uh, running our feet through the mud. But awesome. anyway, thank you so much for having me on your show. Um, I know we didn't agree on everything, but I, I really uh, like to reach out to me. A, a lot of uh, local news media outlets have absolutely no interest in covering my campaign so far. So it was really, really, I was uh, glad that you had me on your show. Anytime and anytime you want to discuss something, please feel free to reach out and we'll talk a little bit more. All right. All righty. Have a great day. Thanks for being here. You have a good one. See you later.
Finally, as we wrap up this week's episode of Carry a Coal Mine, I want you to think about this for a second. I want you to find one positive thing today that you can focus on. Because you get inundated with all this junk on social media and things like this. How will this affect your average life? I'm not saying it won't. I'm not saying all this stuff going on in Seattle won't affect your life. Because it will. But focus on the positivity. You have your health. We live in a beautiful part of the world. We are the ones who have the power to fix this. We do. And it seems like we're outnumbered, but we're not. You have to work with like-minded people. You have to organize. You have to get involved. And you can change the system. You can. Too many people have been too checked out, and too many people are finally checked in. Try to get involved. Or if not, caution people in other cities and warn them it's coming. But really, it's up to you. Share this podcast. Share my posts. Send me things. I'll post them. You know, if they're legible in, in English. Send me stuff, even if you disagree with me. I love when people post a lot about how they disagree with me. It really cracks up. But don't you want to have a conversation rather than just yell at me? I'm, then I mute you and I don't hear it. I mean, I'm sure that's a great way to spend your day, but I think you've got more productive things to do. Get involved. I can only say this so many times. Got a whole lot more coming up this week on the summer edition, the summer of love edition of Canary in a Coal Mine. We'll see you next time. Don't say I didn't warn you. <laughs>